Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. While you're turning, just a couple of odds and ends. First of all, this was not in the bulletin, uh, but uh, we are having our uh, regular monthly business meeting. Uh, I, I really didn't want to overwhelm you with this because last Sunday was the Super Bowl. This Sunday, of course, is another action-packed Sunday night with business meeting. We're just going to have to take care of all this excitement all at one time. But make sure you come back uh, tonight for that. They're always quick and painless. Uh, also, let's remember, next Sunday morning is the uh, World Mission Sunday offering. This offering goes to the general fund of the BMA Missions Department. Now, we mentioned this last week, and there's a little something in the bulletin. Uh, this general fund, of course, takes care of a lot of issues that have to be done when you have so many missionaries around the world. Uh, it helps with the recruitment of missionaries, especially the training of uh, people who are going on the field. And we also have a missionary care uh, ministry uh, because the, uh, the burdens and the wear and tear on missionaries' families as they travel halfway around the world and have to deal with uh, all kinds of cultural things and the issues of being in other countries. Uh, they require, of course, a lot of tender love and care, and I'm glad to give them that. And this, of course, is what this uh, fund takes care of, This uh, the general fund. So if you can uh, pray about it, and next Sunday we'll take a special offering uh, for the BMA World Mission Sunday. Now, I want to mention something else, too, just in passing. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but you see my page there about what's happening in Asbury University there in Kentucky. I don't know if you've been watching what's going on, but uh, you see what has happened is there's a spontaneous awakening going on in this university. It happened just uh, about 11 days ago, it was a regular chapel, and the kids have to go to this chapel, and it's pretty much a regular, ordinary chapel. Everybody went to chapel. The service, they say, was just pretty much unremarkable, except after it was over and people became began to come to the altar to pray, that, of course, everybody left to go to class, and some students stayed to pray. They stayed and prayed. And other students circled around and came back in. And then other students came back in and they were praying and weeping in the altar and, and they were getting things right with God. And then somebody picked up a guitar and started playing softly some praise music and they started singing. Students kept coming back into the chapel and they continued that service. And that service continues today. There's even people there at night huddled up in the altar and praying. And this is, we're talking about uh, 11 solid days. Now, people all over the country are coming over there to see what's going on and maybe experience what's happening in Asbury University. Of course, let me tell you this. You don't have to travel up to Asbury University to get a, a touch from God's hand. But what is happening is this is also spreading to other universities. Samford University in uh, uh, Alabama and also, there was another university mentioned, and I understand that there's uh, something going on in central Arkansas where a couple of hundred people made some, some decisions for Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what's going on here? Obviously, there's a spontaneous revival going on, and it wasn't planned 
Uh, we're going to have this series of meetings. We're going to have a revival. We're going to try to get things going. None of this was planned. It has just been happening, and it's sweeping across the country among the young people of our land. And you might say, this is, this is a great and wonderful thing. But then you say, is this legitimate? Is this real? Will this last? Well, it's not the first time this happened. In this very same chapel in 1970, in 1970, this very thing happened. That was over 50 years ago. And this thing happened, and it caught fire and began to sweep across the country. And it broke out of universities and young people all over the country even if you remember in the early 70s, you had that hippie scene where people just tuned in and dropped out, and, uh, and, and it began to sweep through all of those people, and people began to get deliverance from drug addictions, and all these people became as passionate about Jesus as they were about peace and flower power and all those other things, and it just swept through the country. Now, the news media called it the Jesus Movement, if you remember the Jesus Movement. Well, it caught the attention of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham began to address this in his crusades. In fact, he wrote a book about this. came out in, I believe, 1972 or 73, The Jesus Generation. And he talked about this. And, I mean, it swept through the country. He said he, would, he was at a, a parade one time on one of the floats, and he rounded a corner. He saw all these young people. And he said, all these young people had their finger to the sky. And he said, all he could hear was one way, the Jesus way. And this spread all the way across the country. And you might say, well, that was 50-something years ago. Where's this revival now? See, the revival just kind of fizzled out, didn't it? Well, not so fast. Well, the media coverage and a lot of the excitement fizzled out. But let me tell you. This movement caught the attention of a sixth-grade kid back in 1970. Began to light a fire in this kid's heart. It wasn't, but just a couple of years later, this kid surrendered his life to the Lord, devoted his life to the Lord, and this kid became your pastor. I'm a product of that revival, and that's 50 years later. So we look at a revival, and you say, well, the revival's over. All the excitement's died down. Oh, no, no, no. The effects of this revival in 1970 up through 73 or 74 are still going on. And did you know when I went down to Southwestern Baptist Theological Cemetery, Seminary, excuse me, <laughs> slip of the tongue, and we think that, we think that these guys are just, uh, you know, dignified, and how they came to be seminary professors, did you know, as I talked to some of them, and they brought it up, they said, let me show you the photos. And they showed me pictures of them at some of these Jesus rallies. Professors in the seminary at Dallas-Fort Worth, they were products of this revival. And we're talking about stalwart men who are training others 50 years later, and they're touching lives. I don't know where this thing's going to go, but I do know this. God's at work. God's at work in multiple areas, and it's not limited to one location. So I'm thrilled 
that you say, well, wonderful, God's working again. God never stopped working. And God doesn't stop working. It's all a matter of, are we going to work with him and let him work in us? So as you tune in, just remember, this revival will have effects, not could have effects, but I know it will have effects that will last for over 50 years because the one back in 1970 did. And aren't we glad that we serve a God that works around the clock through all the calendar years? Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word shows us about Jesus and your word shows us about ourselves. We need to hear both stories this morning. Help us to hear them loud and clear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, all of you know this is the story of the rich, young ruler. And you might even see this in a heading of your Bible. Some Bibles have headings and summaries about what's going on. Well, this is two for Sunday. Two for Sunday, and we're not going to look at two, one young ruler. We're going to look at two young rulers this morning. But we're going to start with this one because it's important to look at both of them. Now, Mark records this incident, as does Matthew chapter 19 and Luke chapter 18. And you get a good, clear picture of everything by looking at all of the instances in the all three gospel writers. But I want us to look at, there's a lot of things we could look at. We won't cover every detail of this. But I want us to look at some high points and find some conclusions here that affect our lives. First of all, Jesus finds a seeker. Jesus finds a seeker. We know that this man was seeking something because the detail that Mark says is this. As he was going out on the road, one came running. And we know this was a Jewish man that came running. Now, what we do know, according to Jewish culture of the time, it was considered extremely improper for a Jewish man to run in public, simply because they had long flowing roads. In order to run, you had to kind of gather up those roads which meant you exposed your legs. Obviously, Jewish men had legs like mine. That's why I don't do the beach. So they didn't want to show their legs in public. So we realized that they would not show their legs in public. It was very improper for them to gather up their robes and run in public. 
but it also very undignified. And we know by looking at this passage of Scripture, this man was a ruler. We find that out in, in Luke. He was a ruler. So he was a man of, of standing in the community. He was an adult Jewish man. And the fact that he ran and ran to Jesus, did not care how improper, did not care about his dignity, he ran to Jesus, meant that he was looking for something. Jesus was on the road. I've got to catch up with him. I can't wait. I cannot wait for another time. So he ran up to him. So he runs to Jesus. And he's probably thinking, wow, I found Jesus. But let me tell you this. Before he ran to Jesus, Jesus was already looking for him. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as much as he was looking for Jesus, and as intense as he was, as wanting to catch up with Jesus, Jesus already looking for him. And as much as you want to run to Jesus and maybe struggling to come to Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus already looking for you. He's looking for you. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he definitely was a lost man because Jesus reveals the problem in this man's life. You keep on reading, and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Logical question. But look what Jesus does to encounter this man. He says, Why do you call me good? There was no one good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, let me say what this does not mean. Jesus was not advocating salvation by our own merit. Now, there's a reason he mentioned this, but it was not that we can be good enough to go to heaven. When Jesus began preaching, the first words that are mentioned of his sermons were this. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. The word repentance means we can't be good enough. We're not good enough. There's something in our life that we must abandon. There's sin in our lives we must let go of. We must turn from that. The word repentance means turning away from something. That something is sin. In Luke chapter 13, he says, except you repent, You'll all likewise perish. And he mentions that twice within two verses. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. So why did Jesus bring up these commandments? Well, he was revealing this man's misplaced trust. He wanted to reveal this man the problems that he had. So the problems emerge after Jesus mentions these. Now, the book of Matthew chapter 19, as Matthew records this, something quite telling, Jesus mentions the same commandments that he did here. But here's what he says. That's in response to a question. You see, he said, what, what can I do, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, all you can do to inherit, all you can do to inherit eternal life. You want to know what's required? You've got to keep the commandments. It's quite interesting. 
You know what the young man said? Well, which one? Which ones? And then Jesus recites these. Now, that reveals to us something important about this man's attitude towards sin. Jesus said, you've got to keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? Now, by asking the question of which ones he had to keep, it reveals that there were some that he thought he wouldn't have to keep, that he could let slide. Some sins were insignificant to God. Some sins were allowable to God. Jesus said, keep the commandments. And I've got to know, well, which ones would they be? Not all of them, certainly not all of them. He knew all of them were not going to be possible. So Jesus lists these, and these are some of the most outwardly obvious commandments, right? The outwardly obvious commandments. You see, the, the commandments of the heart, covetousness, and of course having false gods, Jesus didn't mention these. He mentioned the ones that this guy knew they were obviously visible which revealed an inflated estimation of his own goodness. Jesus lists these commandments, and did you realize in verse 20, he said, Teacher, I've kept all these since I was a kid. I've kept all of them. So he said, uh, I'm, I'm a good guy. I, 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 don't, I don't have any problem with sin. That's not an issue in my life. So he had an inflated estimation of how good he was. And so many times you begin to talk to people about being saved, and they say, well, I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't do that, those horrible things. There's things worse that I don't do. And that's, that's, of course, that's correct. This man was a good guy, outwardly. This man was an upstanding guy, and I'm sure he was a moral guy. But he felt like he had kept enough of the law so he could get in. And then Jesus goes straight to the obstacle. And the obstacle in verse 21 is this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. Now, we look at that, and the first thing we zero in on is, oh, he told him to sell everything. Does that mean everybody that comes to Jesus has to sell everything, and, and that's how it is to come to Jesus? And we forget the last sentence. The last sentence, he said, take up the cross and follow me. You want life? You want eternal life? And that word eternal not only means length, but it also means fulfillment. It means complete life. It means life to its fullest. You want life to its fullest? You want eternal life? Take up the cross and follow me. Those two words, follow me. And following Jesus involves everything concerning acknowledging Jesus is God and we're not, we're in trouble and we need help. That's what following Jesus is. And to follow him by faith and trust and yield our life to him. But by saying, sell everything that you have, Jesus revealed this man was trusting in something altogether wrong. You see this 
in verse 23. Jesus looked around, I suppose after the man had gone, and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were astonished at his words. Jesus answered and said again, children, how hard it is for those who, listen to this, trust in riches. You see, riches are not the problem. The presence of riches are not the problem. It was this man's trust in riches that was the problem. Now, Jesus said something about having riches, and the disciples were just astonished. Here's the reason why. Jewish culture, like a lot of cultures in our world today, viewed the measure of a man and his success had to do with the size of his bank account. A successful man was one that had stuff, who had money, who had a bank account, who had possessions. And this man had them. Pastor the scripture said it. And Jesus said, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. You'll find that in Luke 12. Your life is not measured by what you have. Your life is not measured by what you own or what we may drive. It's not measured by that. If you want life, he said, take up your cross and follow me. But he knew that his riches would be a problem. And he doesn't just say, sell everything you have. He says, and then you give this money to the poor. You see, all the things that Jesus listed was things that he said, I hadn't done this. I haven't done that thing wrong. I haven't done this thing wrong. I haven't done this thing wrong. And Jesus said, but you're not doing anything right. Sell what you have. Give it to the poor. And the man vapor locked on him. And it says, he walked away. You see, the man had already revealed that he had problems. Now, one could look at his life and say he had it all going. He had prestige. In Luke chapter 18, verse 18, he says the man was a ruler. Now, the word ruler here is an interesting word that's reserved anytime it's used in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. It has to do with the ruler of the synagogue, if you remember. It has to do with the Pharisees, if you'll remember. And you have to do with the, with the elite of Jewish culture. So this man had prestige. He had what everybody seemed to want. We know he had riches. All three gospel accounts said this man was a wealthy man. But he also... In Matthew chapter 19, he had youth. He was the rich, young ruler. Now, you don't think that that's a big deal till you're not young anymore. I mean, he had something going for him. He was wealthy and a man of position at a young age. His whole life was looking rosy. But he knew something was wrong. How do we know this? Number one, he ran to Jesus, as we mentioned before. This man shouldn't be worried about something that's missing in his life. And secondly, his own question. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments? He says, which one? He lists these commandments. And then he says this, oh, I've kept all these. I've kept every single one of these from the time I was a kid. Then he asked this, what do I still lack? Now, why would he ask that question? Why would he ask that question? If he had money, he had position, he had youth, 
and he had high moral standing. Why would he ask that question? Because he ran to Jesus and said, Jesus, something is still missing in my life. All these other things that I have, and I'm still not happy. What's wrong? And Jesus said, if you want, if you want to follow me, first you've got to get rid of the obstacle, what you're trusting more than me, and you've got to take up your cross and follow me. And it says, he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. He had great possessions. This would be a sad, sad story, except for one statement. And Mark's the only one that makes this statement. And this statement, the story would just be filled with sadness except for this one statement in verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus loved him. He loved this guy that had a selective attitude towards sin. Thought maybe some sins were okay and some sins were not okay. He had a Love for this guy that was privileged, self-righteous, complacent in his own righteousness. He loved this man even though he looked into him and he saw a misplaced trust. Now, now how do we, how did Jesus know about this? It says, Jesus looking at him loved him. The word looking at him doesn't mean that Jesus glanced at him. The word looking in the original Greek language means Jesus took a long, hard look at him. He just stood there, looked at him for a long time before he said what he had to say. It gets even more interesting. The word looking at him is a little bit stronger. It means to look into him. Boy, that's pretty precise. Jesus looked into him, and he saw a heart that was lost. He saw a heart that was arrogant. He saw a heart with a misplaced trust. He had a heart with smug self-righteousness. He had all this ugliness, and he still loved him. He still loved him. And you see, this is not the only young ruler that Jesus loved. The story of another young ruler. And that Jesus loved him too. In the book of Acts chapter 7, you know the story. The Sanhedrin had arrested Stephen. And Stephen preached the truth to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin dragged him out of the city. And the Sanhedrin stoned Stephen to death. And in verse 58 of Acts chapter 7, it says the members of the Sanhedrin laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, not only was he a young man, he was a ruler because he was a Pharisee, as he would later say. And he, to be there, he had to be a member of the council. Here was a young ruler that was present when Stephen was stoned, a young ruler who had it all going for him. What would he say a little bit later on? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, listen to this, who loved me 
gave himself for me. What, what can he say about Jesus? He loved me. He loved me. And Paul would later write about his own life that he was a blasphemer. He was arrogant. He trusted in his own righteousness. Here was a man who was murderous. He, was, he had hatred in his heart. And he said, Jesus loved me. He loved me. Jesus would say this. John chapter 15, verse 18. Greater love has no man than this. The man laid down his life for his friends. But that love gets even better. Because you know what Jesus, what Paul said? He says, Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. I wasn't even a friend of Jesus. And he loved me. The book of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God commends his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies, us, sinners, away from God. He loved the rich young ruler. He loved the young ruler that would become, of course, the apostle Paul. And it gets even better. This love is not limited to young rulers. Paul would later say to the Church at Ephesus, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Now bear in mind, the Ephesian church was like our church. The Ephesian church had people from all walks of life. I'm sure you had leaders in the church, maybe what you'd call rulers in the church. I'm sure you may have had people that you might call wealthy people in the church. I'm sure you may have had young people in the Ephesian church, and then you had the rest of us. You had the rest of us that aren't, aren't that young anymore. You had the rest of folks who may not have a leadership position. We know that every church had its share of even servants and slaves, the lowest on the ladder. All these were in the church. You had folks that didn't have money. You had folks that didn't have a lot. You had folks that were, were elderly. You had folks that didn't have standing. You had people of all walks of life, just like this church. And what did the apostle say in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14? For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what's the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge. He said, I'm praying that you will know the love of Christ. Now, that word know means experience it, that you'd realize it, that you'd realize Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you like he loved the young ruler when he looked into his heart. Jesus loves you like he loved the apostle Paul when he was on his murderous rampage. He loved me and gave himself for me, and he loves you. And Paul said, oh, I wish, it is my prayer, that everybody that reads this letter would know the love of Christ. And that is Christ's prayer for you too, because he loved me and gave himself for me. 
And what a love it is. In the book of Romans chapter 8, we all know Romans 8, 28, but oh, don't miss the rest of that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a love that is. Jesus loved him. And he loves you. And he loves me. And we look at this and say, wow. What could be better? What could be better than rejoicing in the love of Christ and resting in the love of Christ and praise God every day for this love. What could be better? Well, there is something better than rejoicing in the love of Christ. There is something better than resting in the love of Christ and celebrating it every day. Jesus said it this way. The book of John, chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. As I have loved you, love each other. What's, what's better that we could do with the love of Christ? Share the love of Christ and love each other with the same love that Jesus loves us with. The book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Wow. Paul said, I want you to know the love of Christ. And when we fully know the love of Christ, we can share the love of Christ. And we can walk in love as Christ has loved us. How do we do this? Well, there were no chapter divisions when Paul wrote this letter. They were put in later. So part of the same discussion is chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake forgave you. And walk in love as Christ has loved us. What a complete picture. You see, what turns this gloomy story of a man who at that time turned away? We don't know that he stayed away. We don't know that he may have come back to We just know on that day he said no to Jesus. But the one ray of sunlight in this whole story is Jesus looking at him, loved him. And Jesus looking at you, loves you. Now, two men. That Jesus loved. One walked away from Jesus and was sad. One trusted Jesus. And though he lost everything he owned, he said, I rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Are we like the rich young ruler and say, What's missing? What's missing? 
Something missing for you? Christ wants to fill that empty spot. He knew it was there. You know it's there. Don't walk away sorrowful like this man. Jesus loves you. As we stand and sing. Number 82.